Hello everyone, this is the Two Bros Podcast and we are the Two Bros. We talk about things that are at the edge of everyone's consciousness and uh, today we are starting a new series on careers. Now, growing up, we had notions about careers and of course, having chosen careers for ourselves, some of those notions have been uh, true and some of those notions were very, very incorrect. So what we are attempting to do with this series is uh, putting a lot of people who have been in a profession for the better part of a decade and letting them share some of the myths, some of the truths and some of the realities that someone should be aware of before they pick this career for themselves. Joining me is Little Bro. Of course, he is not so little in his profession. Uh, second engineer and almost a decade in the Merchant Navy. Uh, please welcome Arjun. Hello, sir. Good to be here. Good to have you, sir. So let's just dive right into it. What is Merchant Navy? Well, this is a very good question too. You know, let's get some clarity right off the bat. It is not the Indian Navy. <laughs> okay. The Indian Navy deals with defense, uh, guarding our borders, uh, giving us uh, might in the seas. But that's not what we do. Merchant Navy is essentially cargo ships carrying cargo, right? Now, the cargo can be anything. It can be petroleum. It can be... Uh, you know, uh, cars, it can be t-shirts, televisions, uh, you name it, you know, basically everything you order overseas, it can be fruits, it can be vegetables, it can be wine, alcohol, motorbikes, you, the whatever you can think of that is imported by any country is carried on these ships. And these ships are, uh, you know, various of various kinds, they can be uh, like container ships, which have, uh, you know, standardized storage units where everything can be packed on pallets and stored inside uh, standard dimensions. Or let's say, for instance, they can be they can be tankers where you know you have large tanks where products are carried. It can be crude oil, it can be aviation fuel, it can be kerosene, it can be even chemicals. For instance, you know ships carry uh, ammonia and uh, all kinds of chemicals. And then you have car carriers where people uh, you know they drive up a ramp, the car is parked inside the ship, it is secured on the deck, and it's driven across wherever you are, and the car drives off. So you have all kinds of ships really. So, uh, as we understand it, uh, this is international trade. And as one would imagine, most of the volume is carried by sea. Yeah. I mean, uh, the other option really for international trade is uh, airlines. But air cargo, because of, of course, volume issues, uh, it probably accounts for between 3 to 4% of all the volume of trade. And the maximum volume of trade is through shipping. And uh, of course, there are various kinds of ships for various kinds of cargo. Uh, so please tell us about what kind of ships have you served on and are these the kind of ships that make up for a bulk of uh, where merchant sailors go? So just to uh, add of another point, I think it's up anywhere between 90 to 95% of uh, world trade uh, that is uh, dealt with by uh, ships. Uh, you know, it's, it's uh, done by sea. And uh, mind you, ships are the most economical way of transferring goods per ton per nautical mile uh, compared to, let's say, aviation or by road or whatever you can think of. Ships are the most economical way of transporting goods. That is a common misconception. Like people, when they think of ships, they think of, oh, the heavy polluters and stuff. But it is still the most economical uh, means of transport in terms of emissions, in terms of, you know, fuel and money and etc. It's, it's, it's basically the best thing. Now, I've only done uh, container ships. I've been there throughout my life, even through my training years. And, uh, well, yeah, a lot of my friends have been on, uh, you know, LNG carriers, uh, petroleum carriers and uh, row-row ships, which are roll-on, roll-off, like the car carriers, you can call them, all kinds of ships, really. But I've uh, I've only done uh, container ships. 
And uh, are container ships the, you know, the maximum share of, let's say, the total shipping universe that is out there? I would say so, yeah, but because... The the products that you can carry uh, on a in a in a container ship are just it's it's massive you know any you think of anything I mean just looking around you I see a laptop I see a speaker I see some headphones I see a phone these are all carried by uh, you know box inside little pallets and uh, you know carried in containers across seas whereas if you have a specific ship let's say a petroleum ship it's obviously you know restricted in the in the product it can carry with containers you can be uh, you know it can carry anything really I rem- I remember we went from uh, China to Nigeria, uh, I think it was last trip, and we carried bulldozers, completely assembled bulldozers on open uh, top containers. They can call uh, call them, and we we had them on on the decks, and we were carrying uh, uh, bulldozers. The other time, I remember I was a cadet. We carried a full catamaran inside the ship's cargo hold, which was insane. You know, it was massive, and they required a lot of effort to pick it up and lower it into the holds. But yeah, the the products you can carry on a container ship uh, are quite, uh, you know, varied. Understood. And when you say containers, of course, we see some of these containers on road, uh, you know, on big trucks being hauled. So give us an give us a sense of the scale of the ship you're talking about. We know that one container is massive and it is equivalent to, let's say, one and a half buses. Mm-hmm. So how many containers does it, let's say, a medium sized container ship carry? So, I would say like the ship that I I do normally I so if you if you can remember the size of that container now there are two sizes really I mean there of course there are more but the standard sizes are twenty foot and forty foot twenty foot are the obviously the smaller ones and this is the standardized unit that the you use to uh, describe a ship's cargo carrying capacity the ships I deal with carry forty five hundred uh, TEUs or twenty foot equivalent units. So 4500 4500 but those are the wow. those are the smaller ones some of the biggest ones the the ones the biggest ones in the in the in the in the in the world right now carry anywhere upwards of 20000 containers and they go as long as uh, 400 meters by 60 meters you know so fascinating a, yeah. fascinating so uh, now give us a sense of um, you know if you're on a ship that size give us a sense of uh, you know, without the jargon, what does it mean to be there on a day-to-day basis? What what would you be doing? So think of think of a ship as as a floating city. Now, whatever a city needs, you have to uh, generate on board. If everything from let's say power, power is generated on board. Obviously, you can't have ships connected to cables and stuff. You know, and transmission lines, you can't have that. So power is generated on board. Uh, the food is prepared on board. The stores are received on board. The fuel is uh, available on board. And you basically are a floating city or a sustainable organism, a functioning organism that has to sustain itself uh, no matter what. So it's basically, in, think of it as a floating city. Now, talking about day-to-day life, there are, there are obviously there are uh, different departments on deck which handle different, different uh, areas of, uh, of work. Uh, for instance, you have the deck department which handle the nautical side of things. They handle... Uh, the navigation side of things, you know, they handle cargo operations and the upkeep of the ship, you know, the, the shipping and the painting because the ship needs the upkeep because it's salt water and it's metal, you know, requires the upkeep. So these guys deal with all of that, right? Including, let's say, mooring and unmooring operations. That's when a ship comes alongside a berth or a jetty or whatever you want to call it. Then you have the catering side. These guys prepare the food, catering and hospitality, you can say. And uh, these guys prepare not only the meals, they also keep the accommodation clean, they prepare the cabins of the officers uh, and stuff like that. 
and then you so have, let me hmm. so let me get this straight till now so uh, if i were to uh, you know <laughs> simplify things and uh, draw land equivalence uh the deck side is uh, more to do with uh, uh general management uh, which is uh, you know what direction the ship is headed in making sure it is headed in the right sort of direction right coordinates as are communicated by head offices i'm i'm assuming all the routes are preplanned and then when your ship comes to a port they are uh, essentially acting as uh you know liaisons uh, like pilots essentially so talking to air traffic control so they are like pilots talking to port control and making sure the ship comes in smoothly and then the catering side that you mentioned are essentially like hotels hoteliers yeah. so hospitality and upkeep of general accommodation hmm. so i've i'm in a unique position because i've been trained in both the deck and engine side so i can uh, you know really give you a good insight on both of them to think of the deck side as you know there's there's a lot more that goes on on the deck side uh, you know for instance uh, like you said uh, you know the the routes are given by the head office that's not always the case uh, the routes are preplanned but they are generated on board and there are a whole lot of uh, factors that uh, you know factor in let's say for instance uh, currents for instance you know seasonal changes of currents and including things like storms and stuff so you do have to deviate from course and uh, the whole bunch of things that the, the deck side takes care of including things like uh, trimming the ship for instance maybe tilting it forward or backwards for trim optimization the stability of the ship you know because if you load more cargo on one side and obviously just it's not a it's not a car that it's it's planted firmly on the ground it's a, it's a it's a ship so if you load more cargo on one side it tends to list or tilt towards one side you know and then the stability of it all gets affected because mind you it is let's say a 300 400 meter long metal structure if you if you if you uh, loaded incorrectly there are chances of uh, you know uh, structural damages or you know bending or a whole bunch of things you know so that's all of that is uh, the deck department to be honest and where i work the engine side we make sure that basically to to you know keep it uh, really simple we basically keep the propeller turning and we keep the lights on that's uh, as simple simple as it gets So uh if i were to simplify that further i would uh, say that maintenance of everything right from the prime mover of the ship to any of the auxiliary uh, you know components is your job so maintenance upkeep and i'm guessing uh, any emergency measures as well yeah for emergency measures the deck department basically everybody comes along and we all work together for an emergency and uh, yeah the engine side like you said so to run an engine you need a certain uh, bunch of auxiliaries let's say you need uh, lubricating oil you need uh, pumps that develop that pressure you need uh, uh, you know fuel that needs to be purified because the fuel that is supplied is not actually uh, you know you can't use it as is delivered you know you do have to purify it before that so you have purifiers you have compressors you have generators you have you know all kinds of things you have boilers for steam all kinds of things available that uh, an engineer has to Uh, well do a day to day maintenance maybe a watch keeping you can call it you can uh, a more daily monitoring of things it's not like we overhaul everything every day it's just monitoring stuff and things that need attention uh, are dealt with and then you have a planned maintenance system which tells you what exactly needs to be done in what particular frame of time so this is engineering the proper old fashioned way exactly, this is exactly. engineering doing it with your hands when you're sort of uh, working your way up the ladder and then when you're uh, in a supervisory role then you're uh, uh, looking at sops and making sure all the systems are in place and sticking to a maintenance schedule am i correct yeah once you head towards a more managerial side of things you're more worried about uh, compliance 
not just with the company regulations but also international regulations that you're required to comply with and uh, mind you ships do go through the most stringent of regulations mm-hmm. i mean the regulations on land are rather uh, lax in my opinion but uh, yeah you go into compliance you go into management you go into man management you go into rest hour management you go into let's say talking about people's overtimes uh, work schedules uh, planning when you're going to be in port if you have some work planned a whole bunch of things so that's the kind of side that you kind of transition into so it becomes less physical work and more uh, let's say mental work you could call that all right understood so now uh, we've talked about a bunch of engineering terms and for engineers you know at least uh, they'll be fresh off of their textbooks but uh, can you give us a deeper insight for example when you were fresh on board uh, what were you doing with generators and boilers and compressors well give us a sense of you know uh, what what let's say a typical day would look like so i'll tell you a story that happened on my on my last ship and this was uh, it was a saturday and uh, we were just about so saturdays on my ship used to be a half day so you you finish work by 12 noon and uh, then you're free to go so it was i remember it was just around the time when the, the the clock was about to strike 12 when suddenly the ship blacked out total darkness no power nothing and uh, obviously the backup generator kicked in we fixed our, you know we got the other generator running and then we had to investigate what went wrong with the running generator and uh, yeah there there are a few signs so immediately you will not find out what went wrong you know you have to let's say investigate because if you look at a machine from the outside it's still a machine but you don't really know what's malfunctioned inside so we got hold of a bunch of guys we removed a, a few parts and we kind of figured out what went wrong and what had happened was uh, the one of the exhaust valves had snapped off its stem and fallen inside the combustion chamber and that had completely smashed the piston the liner the flame ring the cylinder head it was all gone so that all of that needed replacement it was a terrible uh, destruction and it was really horrible to look at and a repair a fix like this you easily looking at uh, two full working days you know and this is critical equipment it's generator it's power and uh, if you have the added pressure of you know let's say you're going into a port you need to have that generator fixed like right away so so let me let me interject here and uh, simplify some of these things so the generator really is the main source of power there is no other source of power on the ship you may have a backup generator but a generator essentially is what is generating power mm-hmm. and that is all of your electrical systems are are being powered by this generator correct yeah. and not just electrical systems but maybe stuff like fresh water generator so even that needs power to be produced mm-hmm. so essentially uh, and correct me if i'm wrong essentially um, outside of the main propeller everything else is you know uh, taking power off of this generator so that's what even even with your main engine which is coupled to the propeller that is being supplied fuel under pressure by pumps which are running on electricity so if you've lost your power you're basically dead in the water you cannot move further till you restore your uh, the previous condition you have to bring everything back online i see so then uh you know confronted by such a problem then uh, let's say what would a what would someone who's just been on the ship for a year what would be his role if someone's been on a ship for let's say 5 years what would be their role in such an emergency and for someone like you who's been there for a decade and is reasonably senior what would be your role could you take our listeners through that so there's a there's a hierarchy and these roles are split into not a number of years at sea but by ranks right So let's say a guy who's uh, like you said uh, only one year at sea maybe he's a cadet he's an engine cadet right or a deck cadet for that matter 
and uh, moving on further you have to go for your competency exams and i mean we'll come to that you get your license you sail as a fourth engineer that's the first officer rank on the engine side now fourth engineer is in essential uh, in essence is uh, in charge of let's say purifiers and compressor and a few other machinery but in case of a malfunction of this scale it's all hands on deck it's all hands on this one problem everybody accumulates assembles and we deal with that one problem right and uh, the third engineer in a sense is in charge of let's say you said 5 years that's a third engineer uh, he's in charge of maintenance on the generator so he's the main man to who's going to actually do the work second engineer which is my role i'm the guy who's in charge of calling the overall shots for instance let's say uh, arranging manpower and i'm also responsible for safety in the engine room let's say people don't get uh, you know they do the right isolations before they start work let's say they don't get sprayed with hot oil let's say the machinery doesn't start while they're working on it things like that isolations are very important and i mean i can delegate these jobs to somebody if i'm sure that they are competent but if something happens in the engine room it's it's going to be on me that it was on the my watch that somebody got injured or didn't do something properly because i am the overseer of of all these things so arranging manpower people actually doing stuff you know the roles get kind of split and then of course you have uh, the boss the chief engineer who sits on top of me and he is another overseer on top of another overseer you know you can say that so he's uh, think of him like uh, you know like he's just there for let's say technical guidance and maybe if things go really wrong he will pick up a spanner or two i mean these roles are like lot they're not hard and fast rules but they tend to vary like like for instance sometimes sometimes you can have a competent uh, third engineer who can handle it so you leave it to him and sometimes you have a third engineer who's not that competent so you end up doing the work for him i see so uh, that's a fair assessment of you know where, what you're likely to do depending on how many years at sea and of course what rank you've picked up now there are uh, a lot of myths around merchant navy you oh, know yeah, tell in, me about among it. the among hmm. the general population hmm. so let's run through some of these myths okay and and let's go to the biggest one first up uh people say that merchant navy sailors are rolling in the dough so uh do you want to address some of these money myths that uh, exist yeah i mean this is this is a very big myth and uh, let me let, let me just throw in a stat there that the salaries for merchant navy officers or crew even have not been revised uh for the last i think 20 or 22 years they have been the same what has changed is the exchange rate for india at least but for other countries it's pretty much the same let's say for us or uk for instance it's pretty much the same that hasn't changed so the salaries itself they haven't changed as much you know for the last 20 22 years compared to let's say a salary of uh, an engineer who would get something in india 20 years from now and what he gets today you know there's a big difference and of course you know you got to throw in the inflation and you got to throw in a whole bunch of factors in there and anybody uh, in a in a management kind of a position in a decent uh, mnc or a you know reasonably big company will easily earn uh, the same the same amount of money what i will say is that you're off to a good start the starting salary compared to what a starting salary for an equivalent position on land is there's a big difference there but eventually it uh, plateaus out and the salary increase from then onwards is not that much compared to the salary increase that people have uh on on land let's say a a, a marketing graduate earns anywhere between like 50 to 50000 to a lakh in india in terms of rupees and a ceo which is essentially well not a ceo let's say one level down let's say a chief engineer level kind of a seniority 
can earn anywhere between 50 lakhs to a crore you know you never know what depends on the company but whereas a chief engineer it kind of plateaus out and it's it's pretty much the same after that the increment year after year is not that much so you kind of reach that level and you stay there so that is a big myth that people are rolling in the money not anymore i mean it used to be the case in the early 90s and 70s and what not we've heard those stories we we've grown up on those stories in merchant navy but it's not the case anymore anybody can earn uh, what i make or what anyone else makes very easily on land without having to sacrifice uh, the you know, the social aspects of of living but of course the caveat that there is that the equivalence you have talked about is uh, for blue chip companies and for people who are making it in management yeah so uh, i suppose that's fair uh but uh interesting point that you raised there that uh, salaries have plateaued out so in in a way merchant navy salaries are then like aviation you know mm-hmm. where we heard stories about pilots and uh, air stewards and stewardesses uh, getting uh, the big bucks in the 90s and then of course it's all plateaued out yep. so i suspect uh, the same has happened there so thank you for busting that myth mm-hmm. uh, there's a follow up question about uh, taxation mm-hmm. so uh, are merchant navy sailor salaries for example taxable well to my knowledge they are not if you qualify the criteria for uh, staying outside the country for 183 days and in a period of 5 years you're outside the country for or is it 4 years 4 years you have to be outside the country for 365 days so if you qualify these two criteria your salary is not uh, taxable so that's a okay. big plus that's a big plus that is a big plus so your saving rate goes up there yeah now uh, a follow up question is that uh, of course the trade off is uh, time spent with your friends family etc on land so the next question is that uh, there's a myth that merchant navy sailors don't have uh, a family life so is that true i mean what what is a typical leave or a contract situation these days no i don't think that's true i mean a, a lot of uh, in fact a lot of people are married i mean i'm probably the exception on my ship and people are surprised that i'm not married uh but yeah a lot of people have families uh, they can they have they have the provisions of getting family on board but i'll i'll come to that in a more structured uh, manner your leave depends on your rank basically let's say if you're a, these days let's say if you're a crew member you are your contract is anywhere between 6 months to 9 months and the leave that you get is anywhere between let's say 2 months to 3 months right and then you move on to become a junior officer on board which is your fourth engineer third engineer your third officer second officer their contracts are anywhere between 5 to 6 months and their leaves are anywhere between 2 and a half to 3 months at a time right now there are companies where you have these contracts and there are other companies where you're employed for one contract so you do a 5 months contract you stay on as long as you want and then when you want to sail you inform the company that i'm ready to join again so your leave can be the rest of the year for, for you know in a sense so that depends on you the other companies they have a contract basis so if you finish one contract you get a certain amount of leave then you go on another contract right uh and obviously once you gain seniority your your leave structure changes your num- your amount of leave changes so the contract i'm on these days is a 3 on 3 off so you sail for 3 months and then you get leave for 3 months and if you sail longer if let's say you sail for 4 months you get 4 months leave so that really depends and the provisions these days is for uh, let's say most companies most companies i would say a lot for uh, officers wives and children to join them on board for a short duration again depends on how the economy is or uh, i remember there was a point where piracy was on the rise so they had scrapped this policy there was a point where now let's say corona is on the rise so they've scrapped it again you know so families can join uh, you know junior officers and senior officers for a particular duration that depends on the company you're in 
and uh, yeah so the the myth around there's no family life you can't have uh, children and stuff now that's that's not right well i i suppose that doesn't sound half as bad i mean um, the rest of us we work five days uh, morning to evening barely have a time enough time for ourselves leave alone someone else and then all you get are two days a week where you are basically decompressing from the uh, week you just spent mm-hmm. so two days a week is pretty much uh, the same as you know getting two and a half months for five months so yeah. Uh, that doesn't sound bad at all now um another myth uh, or let's say another uh, theory uh, that people have around merchant navy is that it gets you to see the world and that you end up uh, going to multiple countries you end up traveling a lot and of course the follow up question that you are uh, partying in every place and you're essentially chilling in every place and you've got uh, friends in every place mm-hmm. so uh, you know the kind of friend i'm talking about so uh, give us give us an insight into that No, I'll tell you this used to be the case, but uh, not anymore. I mean, I've grown up on stories where they said uh, they were this particular ship was, uh, let's say, alongside in Brazil somewhere for thirty days, and they were out every night. They were drinking. They entered. They attended the carnival, and all kinds of things. But the, those days are long gone. It's not. That's not the case anymore. You know, you're a, let's say a, a typical container ship, and if you're going to a port in China, you're in and out in nine hours. Just that's it's that quick. So. to an outsider i can say yes i've been to china but actually i haven't been to china i haven't seen anything i've seen the cranes in the port i've seen the containers stacked outside in the port that's pretty much it there is no time and in those 9 hours you have planned some maintenance you have planned some work because when you're in the port that's the time you can switch off certain critical machinery do some repair work that is required so that time is very critical right and <clears throat> I mean, people. You can. It's. I really don't think uh, you're well traveled. Not just in container ships. Let's say oil tankers, for instance. They don't really go to the shore. Shore. They have an offshore terminal where they discharge their oil or the the natural gas or the LPG or whatever they are uh, carrying. They don't really uh, go to the shore side. You know. So I can speak in terms of uh, container ships. There are ports where you're not allowed to go ashore. Right. There are ports where you reach at night and the you you're gone by the morning. Right. there are ports where you have work planned right and there are cases where you have ports where you have a security threat for instance so you can't go out and there's a whole bunch of reason now with the corona virus i remember my last trip was 5 months i didn't step off the ship even once so i will definitely not say i'm well traveled yes you get a chance to visit some strange places some strange lands and if you're lucky you can maybe step out let's say maybe if you're a deck off so your chances of stepping off are more right compared to an engineer So yeah I would say that uh, I I don't think that's uh, that's the case. Now coming to partying and stuff it again like I said used to be the case but most companies now have uh, have got a zero alcohol uh, policy. You cannot cannot drink on board. If you're caught you're fired straight away. And I are have you saying are you saying there is no alcohol on board even for Saturdays and Sundays? Nothing. Zero alcohol not even on shore leave. When you go ashore leave the ship you come back no alcohol. In fact you cannot even join a ship in a in an in a ebriated state you can't do that right so that is a myth that everybody thinks that oh sailors are drinking like uh, they're tankers no that's not the, that's not the case anymore it's gone lot of companies have employed a zero alcohol policy and a few friends of mine have been uh, sacked because they were found drunk uh, after a shore leave so that companies take this these things very very seriously because if you have an accident the first thing they're going to check is your blood alcohol and then if you if your crew are found to be uh, you know drunk then straight away your insurance uh, cover up goes away you know and 
the other thing that uh, talking about parties and your friends friends you know that again like those were stories that we heard of but now let's say after 911 happened the port security has gone up so much if you have no business of being in the port or on the ship you are not even allowed to enter the premises so that's gone that is not even there anymore that's that's a that's a whole other thing so i won't uh, say that uh, sailors don't uh, indulge in uh, deviant kind of a behavior i mean some of them do but i think that's uh, common to all people and all professions so that to single out one profession for uh, this is uh, i would rather i would say it's unfair a bit it's a little unfair yeah uh thank you for clearing that up uh, and you mentioned the security aspect now of course post the pandemic uh, that will be taken very very seriously but another aspect of security that keeps popping up in the news every now and then is sea piracy so uh, can we talk a little bit about uh, where is privacy uh, where is uh, piracy rampant and uh, you know is it is it one of those things that uh, you can help or is anyone and everyone under threat so there are a few hot spots for uh, piracy uh somalia obviously is the most famous one and uh, then you have west africa where there's nigeria uh, the gulf of guinea essentially then you also have pirates in the straits of balaka which is uh, the uh, malaysia singapore straits you also have pirates in the bay of bengal which are uh, which originate from let's say uh, bangladesh maybe or in, even india or myanmar i don't know somewhere there so piracy is uh, quite rampant and uh, you know you're uh, very limited in terms of your own defense uh, so i mean all you have is defense you have no offense against uh, these pirates you can only defend your ship and once uh, you're boarded by uh, a pirate the instructions are to uh, com- you know cooperate and not uh, engage in any way because obviously we're not trained to take care of that uh, situation and uh, yeah i mean there have been there've been so many cases uh, where and if if you really uh, pay attention it's almost a daily occurrence where ships are getting attacked or crews are getting uh, kidnapped or ships are getting hijacked for ransom and uh, yeah it's a, it's a big problem and as a sailor you can't really do much you rely on the cooperation of governments you rely on the cooperation of your own company uh, payment of ransoms maybe uh, diplomatic negotiations i don't know a whole bunch of things but yeah it's it's a, it's a big problem so a moving ship of that size uh, does it have no defenses against pirates So if you've uh, and f- to all our listeners if you've seen this movie called uh, Captain Phillips the the measures that are shown in the movie of what a ship deploys to counter attack uh, a piracy attack is very accurate that's all you have you have let's say barbed wire fences you have your uh, your uh, fire hoses which spray seawater which make the whole thing slippery and you can't climb you have locks you have padlocks you have grills that you can uh, put in place but it's more it's it's just a preventive uh, kind of a mechanism which can easily be overpowered as you saw in the movie if you haven't seen it i really recommend it it is based on a real life incident so yeah i mean ships are kind of equipped with it let's say in cases where things are really serious like for instance uh, nigeria it's like in in some of these ports you are given an armed escort so there's a there's a patrol boat that you know goes in front of you that leads you to the port to and from the port limits so there are there there are a few countries that deploy these tactics as well but they are again it's not everywhere and they can't cover the entire ocean because it's a big it's a big area thank you for uh, clarifying that arjun 
Now, from a serious point like security, let's come to some of the common, uh, you know, more more uh, basic sort of questions that one might have and myths, of course. So one of them is seasickness. Mm-hmm. So how often uh, do you, for instance, feel seasick? And is there somebody who is more susceptible? Have you seen anybody with like a chronic case of seasickness? How stable are these ships? I'll tell you this question. The number of times I've been asked this question. I mean, it's, it's not even funny. Uh, yeah, seasickness depends on uh, the person. For instance, I've never been seasick. It's I think it's something you're born with. Uh, I've sailed with a few people who are who get seasick with even a minor rolling of uh, I don't know two or three degrees. They get seasick. It depends. You know, you can't. It's not a universal truth that everybody's going to get seasick. It, it depends. And uh, ships that size, you would assume uh, like my ship, my last ship, for instance, what about sixty-five thousand tons uh, dead weight, right? And you would assume that it's a lot of weight and you can't really do much. But the way we get tossed in the ocean, it's not even funny. I mean, Mother Nature and the power that is there in the water, in the moving water, it's it's immense. You know, it can rattle even the biggest of uh, structures, the biggest of ships. And there's not a damn thing you can do about it. So, uh, thanks for clearing those myths out, Arjun. Now, uh, after clarifying those many myths, we understand that the travel bit is overstated and uh, so is the partying bit. So, in the absence of all of this, what is the social life on board a ship? Is it all, you know, work and humdrum affairs or is there a bit of fun that uh, happens on board a vessel? So, there are a, uh, the schedules in place, right? For, let's say, you're a, if you're a deck officer, you have uh, two watches, morning and evening. Let's say a third officer takes the morning 8 to 12 and the evening 8 to 12 watch. And after that, he's free to do whatever he wants. He might have some maintenance on deck. A third officer, for instance... Uh, takes care of firefighting and life-saving appliances on board. Apart from that, he's pretty much free to do whatever he wants. You know, same goes for other people. Like for engineers, uh, for instance, you have you work eight to five, and after that, you're free. And uh, you have one duty engineer. Like uh, let's say something goes wrong, he takes care of that. If some alarm goes off, he takes care of that. But apart from that, he's free, right? So that depends. And uh, t- talking in terms of social life, it really depends on the person. If a person is social, he will. Uh, come out of his cabin if he's not that socially he's going to stay in his cabin with his phone on or his headphones on with the movie playing on his laptop mm-hmm. so the, it really depends i mean there are a few uh, you know options available in terms of recreation we do have uh, decent internet now i would say i mean when i started there was no internet but now the internet these days is decent uh, think of the old dial up days uh, i think it's it's about it's about that fast i mean maybe slightly better than dial up mm-hmm. and uh, you have a PlayStation, you have a big TV, you have a big sound system, you have table tennis, you have half-court basketball, you have a swimming pool. You can pretty much, you can do pretty much uh, whatever you like. Like, for instance, we were at Anchor on my last year for a very long time. We played cricket on board. We got hold of some cricket bats and uh, tennis balls and we had a proper tournament on board uh, the ship. That kind of space is available. So if you have willing participants, if your crew is social, you will have a good social life. And then once a month, we had our, uh, you know, barbecue and your, uh, you know, a kind of a social gathering where everybody's there. You play some music, you talk, you take pictures and, uh, you know, stuff like that. And of course, cricket you... Cricket and barbecue, eh? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that sounds amazing. I mean, uh, cricket on a vessel, uh, that, that sounds like an extreme sport in itself. Mm-hmm. So uh, this cricket tournament aside, what are some of these, what are some of the high points, you know, uh, memories or days that you've spent on board that keep you going through the tough times some of these high points that you can share with our listeners like I remember it happened fairly recently where we had uh, a major overhaul that needed to be done on the main engine <clears throat> we had to replace uh, the cylinder liner 
Now, if for those of you don't know what a, don't know what a liner is, it's what a piston travels inside of. You know, that's basically what makes the combustion space. So, and it's not like a tiny uh, liner. This thing is, I think, it's 16 feet high and it weighs about nine tons, right? And uh, the crew was supposed to get off the next day, but this was this job was planned a day before the sign up. Not nobody was happy about it, and. uh we were in a bit of a spot because we only had 24 hours and a job like this if all goes well takes about uh, about 24 hours and there have been cases where uh people had took people had taken up anywhere between 36 hours at a stretch to finish this job and it's not something that you can leave midway and start again the next day because while you're working the ship's propulsion is crippled you can't you can't go anywhere so you can't leave it right so i remember we started at 5 in the morning and i knew what a herculean task we have and what a long way we had ahead of us but uh, yeah god bless that crew and everything touched wood everything went well that day and we progressed really well we got the head out really quickly uh, we got the piston out then finally we got the liner out but taking the liner jacket off was a big problem that we installed that and we installed the line the new liner the new piston the new head everything done in 21 hours and we were good to go so the satisfaction of a job well done the then. satisfaction and, and of a, a job well done and a and job done with your hands it's it's not just that it's like i would say in the in the engine room you work in a team you know that the collective coming together of people and working towards a single goal and achieving it and doing a good job and finally when that first uh, movement happened of the engine and the engine was up and running again and you see that the unit uh, parameters are all good you know the exhaust temperatures are fine the, everything else is fine and you have uh, lubricating oil coming and the sensors are working the pressures are good everything is perfect that sense of satisfaction that Yes, we did this, and it's all good now. That is, you you can't you can't it can't be measured. You it can't be bought. It has to be earned. Lovely, lovely to hear that. And I want to reiterate something you said, which you know maybe people will miss when they listen to this. You mentioned that the liner was sixteen uh, feet high and nine tons. Yeah. Now compare that to a liner or a cylinder in a car, mm-hmm. which is if you have a one-liter turbo mm-hmm. split across three cylinders, you essentially have a third of a liter yeah. in a cylinder, which means you can hold it in your hand. <laughs> compared to that, you just said a head which was sixteen feet high and nine tons. A liner that is monumental. Yeah, so a liner of a car could be anywhere between. Uh, 10 kilograms i would say 10 kilograms 5 to 10 kilograms i mean it's a guess right and some of these units are so small that they are incorporated inside the block right so and obviously these things don't don't really go wrong in car engines but yeah for a ship yeah 9 tons it's a liner it's it's massive wow so we talked about some of the high points and the satisfaction garnered from a job well done now obviously where there are high points there are low points So talk us through some of your tough days. I mean, uh, what what goes through your head, and uh, what is something that you then think about to push yourself through that day? Uh, yeah, there are a lot of low points as well, and a few come to my mind. Uh, for instance, uh, recently, where a lot of uh, our crew members were due for a sign off, and there was no nothing in sight. Every country had uh, sealed their borders. There were no flights going back, uh, and even if we were able to get off. Uh, the ship at some at some port your own home country was not allowing flights back so people were stuck on board for extended periods of time and that that really affects the morale you know people had uh, spent 14 uh, 15 months on board in, in extreme cases people 
uh, missed the delivery of their own children in that uh, you know they were they were they were on board for that long they they just couldn't go back so that period in itself those few months when i was also stuck uh, you know a little bit uh, was very you know very depressing because you don't know what's going on you have no choice but to carry on and move forward and being in a managerial kind of a position i had to deal with these things that i don't want to tax people too much because uh you know the crisis around uh, seafarer mental health was being talked about a lot people were affected visibly affected and uh, these are challenges that we faced every single day and there was no news inside we had no idea when borders were going to open up and they have still haven't opened up completely so there are still seafarers who are stuck so those were some low points and uh, talking about some other low points i would say uh, there were there was a case where uh, uh something went wrong with the main engine there was a sensor problem but to just to narrow it down it took us two days you know we talked with the owners we talked with the technical staff of the owners we talked to the technical staff of the company nobody could figure it out and it was like the ship would run for two hours and then this malfunction would happen and we would slow down again and then we are again dead in the water the main engine doesn't work and then again we restart runs for two hours it this went on for two days we didn't sleep everybody was upset and you know you develop a kind of a bond with your ship and you, when the ship you know doesn't work to its uh, optimum uh, potential you just feel really sad and at least i mean i get the sensation as an engineer i don't know about uh, deck officers as such but as an engineer i felt so sad that my ship is is dare i say suffering you know <laughs> and i so- there's, there's not a damn thing we could do about it you mentioned two things uh, the first thing is uh, you know having a feeling of being uh, not in control mm-hmm. of you know your own destiny or, or let's say even a short term future for instance when something like a pandemic happens essentially you're maroon and the second bit you talked about was uh, it's a tough job so technical it's a technical job and it's a tough job and sometimes uh, answers are uh, demanded of you and uh, uh there may be no simple straightforward answers and you have to do troubleshooting you have to manage people who may be in different kinds of motivation levels and and you know at the same time uh, you know just uh, maintain a cool and calm uh, composure because it's not like a land job wherein you go back to your family and you blow off some steam you've got to go back to the same people the next day so uh, interesting uh, you know perspective there uh, i don't think a lot of people consider this uh, i mean a lot of people would consider something like you know okay loneliness you know mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, being away from your family etc so uh, some of those typical things how does one cope and does one get used to that after a point of time see again it it depends on the person you know i i really didn't know if i was up to it but i i had joined uh, merchant navy and that was a total accident i mean uh, i don't want to get into that but i i found out that uh, it's it's a bunch of things really i mean you it's it's a choice to be honest you know you can choose to live with it you get okay with it like i got okay with it i mean initially i struggled with uh, losing touch with so many of my friends and it used to affect me that my friends no longer text me or mail me when i'm sailing and they only uh, come and talk to me when i'm back on land but eventually i i outgrew it some people don't and i've at least uh, the newer generation with the addiction to social media i would say they really find it a bit uh, difficult to adjust to life on board and i remember there are extended periods of time where let's say the internet uh, doesn't work on board you know uh, there is this particular stretch between south africa and mauritius where the internet dies for a week and uh, the kids the cadets they really uh, struggle to to cope sometimes you know with these things so like, it depends on the person some people take it well some people are more uh, you know attuned to these uh, problems 
and uh, some people really struggle with it so it's it depends on the person you can't really predict how you're going to behave or how you're going to act on board unless you're actually there and then you figure it out well uh, i would say the social media thing is universal yeah. and uh, even on land people are mentally absent even though they may be next to you uh, but you know that's an interesting point so now let me ask you the million dollar question uh, who is this career for and how can one figure out before of course the trial and error bit of joining and then figuring out oh this is not for me or oh this is for me so what are some of the personality traits that you have seen around you in a decade where of or that indicate that a person will be able to adjust and make a career out of themselves uh, in the merchant navy and and what are some uh, career tra- uh, what are some personality traits that you think are uh, you know not going to gel and and those are let's say warning signs that these kind of people shouldn't be a consideration consider the merchant navy as a career option see it it depends uh there are there are aspects of my own personality that changed while uh, i was on board you know if i if you remember when i started sailing how social i used to be but now i find uh, comfort in solitude and when, you know with my own thoughts so it depends you know you have a transformation that happens with the, these extended periods of time and it depends how a person adapts to these situations now for instance if somebody is uh likes to be in the limelight likes to be uh you know talked about likes to be liked in the early stages they will suffer they will have a hard time because one thing uh this profession has taught me is that you are not the center of the universe the the machinery can take you down at the minutes at a minutes notice and there's not a damn thing you can do about it you have to come down to earth and realize that you are not a uh, you know a supreme being and you're not uh, the bee's knees all of a sudden you know if you have or whatever uh, so yeah that it 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 teaches you to be to be grounded now if that is something that people struggle with if somebody is accustomed to being in the limelight if someone likes to be mr popular then i think it's they're going to struggle a little bit but eventually as you gain seniority you know you can uh, maybe enjoy those traits as well so it's a bit of a struggle in the beginning like it was a struggle for me as well because i found it really hard to adapt because suddenly you have uh, people so senior to you and you suddenly feel like do you even belong here because you don't know anything because you're a cadet you know you feel like you're barely contributing there were days when i didn't know where i should stand on the on the bridge when i was uh, when i was doing my uh, watchkeeping on the bridge I don't know where to stand because I was that clueless and eventually somebody had to tell me that when you're here you stand here you do this you do that so somebody tells you and then you learn the ropes and then you get okay get on with it right so it's a bit of an adjustment for to begin with and it depends how the person takes it like for instance there was no internet when we began and there was uh, there was no other way we would rush to get phone cards from the ports and stuff if somebody is not okay with staying with away from their family for that uh, for those extended periods of time they will have a tough time i'm not uh, saying it's going to be easy i mean ships have internet now but again uh, like how how often do you see me online when i'm sailing i i work 8 to 5 then after 5 i'm engaged in let's say playing some table tennis or basketball or whatever and uh, after all of that maybe for a few hours i'll be online you know and so yeah that depends uh, i mean it depends on the person really so to reiterate uh, you've said uh, someone who's got a sense of calm and being uh, you know uh, grounded 
and also someone who's adaptable and malleable to the situations and comfortable with not being the center of attention early on because yeah. uh, some people need that uh, you know almost on a weekly monthly basis that okay to be recognized that oh yes you you did this and you contributed and you have to be sort of at peace with uh, not having any uh, star of the show and star of the evening kind of moments for long long years until you sort of uh, get into a place where you know everything and you're in a position to influence things so good points there what are some of the uh, you know obvious uh, markers that someone's not going to belong at sea apart from let's say they can't handle loneliness and solitude all that well uh, what kind of personalities do you think uh, you know do not belong in uh, smaller teams away from human contact for extended periods of time see i would say uh, talking from an engineering point of view you do require a bit of uh, mental acumen because it's not uh, straightforward like you said there are cases where you have to f- figure out what went wrong based on the signs that you're given so if a person does not have that uh, that tact he's not going to you know he's going to go by the book but the minute you start deviating uh, situations will deviate from the textbook he he's going to struggle you you need people who work in a team who are okay with uh you know taking ideas from others and acting on those ideas people who don't put their own egos in front of uh the work itself because you know the at the end of the day everybody is there to get a job done and then you you do your job you earn your money you go back home and then uh, you don't even see them again for i don't know how many years later so that doesn't matter so a person who can put their ego aside who can work in a team for instance even if it's a bad idea in your opinion you do you do it anyway right because you're a part of the team and that's what the instructions are so i've uh, found myself in those situations but you do it anyway because that's uh, what a team requires so i think these are the main traits that you really need and obviously handling loneliness and uh, uh, let's say uh, you know, if if you're you know your sleep cycles get affected because of changing time zones you're arriving uh, let's say 4 in the morning in port you have to be awake it's not always that you can you hit the bed and you you sleep you know so there are cases where you haven't slept you still have to work because there's literally no one else who can do the job for you so those are some of the cases fatigue mental exhaustion loneliness a whole bunch of things and uh, yeah if you think you have it uh, then the merchant navy is the the deal for you and uh, talking about some of the brass tacks uh, talk us through about uh, how good is the internet connectivity now i mean connectivity is at the center of you know the human condition and uh, for example can somebody use whatsapp throughout their contract is the internet that good yeah whatsapp not just whatsapp but texting people use whatsapp audio on a daily basis and on a good day you can use whatsapp video and uh, i don't know for some reason if you have a samsung phone you can even use whatsapp video every day but for apple phones for some reason doesn't work i don't know what that is about but uh, samsung clearly doing something uh, you know uh, better than apple in that case uh, yeah i've seen i see a lot of people uh, engaging in whatsapp video calls with their family members on a daily basis for me i'm i'm okay with texting i do call every now and then uh, the internet is decent there are cases where the internet gets patchy let's say when you're arriving a port there's a whole bunch of information that needs to be sent so the ships uh, uh you know utilization of the internet kind of kind of drops a little bit because other stuff takes precedence in these cases so your bandwidth for allocated to the crew kind of diminishes so those areas you might not have the best internet and then there are geographical areas like i said uh, between uh, let's say south africa and madagascar or between madagascar and mauritius for instance there's a bit of a, a, a dark area there where there is no internet for a week so yeah apart from that internet is pretty decent 
And uh, how's how how are the crew appointments? Uh, what's the accommodation like? How's the food? How's the water? So again, that depends on your seniority. The captain and the chief engineer have the biggest cabins. They have an office. They have a day room. They have a bedroom. Then you come down the the decks. You have second engineer, chief officer, and then the junior officers and the ratings. Everybody's got their own cabin. They're attached to baths. They have their bed, a couch, or a table to themselves. They have a mini fridge in their cabins. Uh, the slop chest, as they call it, is open where you can uh, buy chocolates, cigarettes, soft drinks. Uh, you name it. It's it's all there. And uh, yeah, cabin wise, it's it's pretty sorted. I mean, uh, gone are the days. I I remember somebody asked me, "Do you have do you have bunk beds on the ship?" Well, no, that's not the case. I mean, submarines maybe, but again, we are not the navy. So yeah, these are the questions. Accommodation wise, it's pretty sorted and. This is uh, a lot of a lot of emphasis has been paid in the recent years for uh, seafarer welfare on board ships. So companies are uh, you know doing their bit to provide uh, good accommodation to seafarers. So that's not a problem at all. And what about the food and water situation? For example, if somebody is of a particular uh, belief, mm-hmm. uh, would would that kind of food be available everywhere and to everybody? So water is produced on board from uh, sea water. So that's not a problem. Your tanks are always good. And uh, in terms of food, it it uh, you you pick up provisions uh, from a port, and you kept you keep them stored in uh, cold rooms, and over a period of time you start utilizing them. Now let's say if somebody is a vegetarian, yes, there are options available, but again that depends on your cook. If you have a good cook, your uh, options are a plenty. I mean there were cases where I was on some ships where all I had for uh, I think four or five months was rice and uh, soup because everything else was I didn't even recognize what the, the other things were. So yeah, you have those cases where you have uh, you know you're really stuck. But I think it also teaches you flexibility. Now I I find uh, that change in my behavior where if somebody asks me where which restaurant do you want to go to and what do you want to order f- for for dinner, I'm quite flexible with with everything. So th- I th- I see that change uh, that has come into me. So I'm not fussy about food anymore. So whatever's on the table, and obviously after working in a hot engine room for four to eight hours, you'll basically eat whatever's on the table. You don't really care. It's hot or cold or it's meat you don't even recognize you will eat it i see and uh, you mentioned there's ample social life on board uh, and you can you know you have playstations and tv screens etc so i'm assuming you have movie nights game nights card nights carom nights all of that again that depends on uh, the crew if they're willing it depends on the management if they're willing to spend some money to get some quality gear like uh, for instance on my last ship my captain was a guitarist so we invested in some good quality guitars so we had nights where he would perform for the crew so he was he was really good he was a filipino captain quite good so we have we have we've had those nights lovely so it sounds like uh, a ship like you said is a small city it's uh, uh, got the best and uh, you know the worst of both worlds it's got a little bit of the hostel life it's got a little bit of the community life it's got recreation it's it, i think it also gives you enough time to work on yourself for example if you want to spend 3 uh, months away from all distractions on your personal fitness for example and i remember that you uh, took on a 100 days of running challenge and you successfully completed it while you were on ship is that correct yeah i mean there is a fully functional gym and it is available to everybody it again boils down to your own uh, commitment it is something that you can take on you choose to do it and a lot of people do a lot of people uh, are always uh, found in the gym pumping iron or uh, running on the treadmill so those options are also available to you that's that's good to know and you know i'm i'm glad that uh, you know effort and uh, money are being spent on uh, crew welfare 
and uh, it is important for for the human condition and especially uh, so in a in a you know career like shipping where you're away from your uh, near and dear ones for extended periods of time so uh, thank you for busting so many myths about uh, merchant navy uh, our- all right that was great to hear now if one is just starting out can you give you know people students some direction on how to get started uh, towards a career in the merchant navy how does one get in so you have a bunch of uh, you know academies uh, so to speak which uh, take uh, merchant navy cadets uh, you, the famous ones are obviously uh, tulani in pune you have amet in chennai you have a bunch in delhi as well a whole bunch of them they're all there's a full list on on the internet you can just do a simple google search all you need is i think it's 50% or 60% in your physics chemistry maths and english and that's all you need that basically qualifies you to join uh to join the academy obviously the the individual academy will have their own entrance exam now again that's where that varies uh it, it's not a standard test like uh you know like aiee or something so their individual academies will have their own uh exams to get into it they can be a medical as well a physical uh, fitness test as well things like that and uh, once you're in the academy you sit for their own exams they have a semester a situation where it's four years eight semesters and then anywhere between the third and fourth year companies come to the campus for placements that's pretty much how the uh, engineering or any other recruitment uh, you know uh, facilities happen in any other profession so that's what it is you get, once you get into an academy and again you have to figure out uh, which companies which good companies come to which uh, you know uh, training academies because not every company will go to every academy in india right so you have to maybe do a bit of research there uh for instance let's say mersk comes to uh, tulani a lot to get cadets from there both deck and engine so that is something that works in your favor uh money wise it's a little expensive i believe i was lucky to be honest i didn't have to pay that much but i believe it's anywhere between uh 17 to 18 lakhs right now for the entire course uh, fee that you have to pay and uh, again again this is uh, spread out over four years and eight semesters and uh, once you're over that then and once you're placed you start sailing with that company as a cadet and once your cadetship is done which is as per the requirements as per the the ministry of shipping the dg shipping which is uh, which sets the requirements for cadets you are eligible to take on your competency exams you have to do a few basic courses like firefighting rescue survival uh, first aid and stuff once you do all of that you're eligible to take on your competency exams which happen in various locations in india for instance bombay calcutta delhi uh, cochin chennai even and with those competency exams you have some written papers you have some oral vivas once you clear those you get your competency a certificate a license so to speak to sail in that rank right now in india you get a a, a third engineer's license and you can sail as a fourth engineer and a third engineer on that to become a second there is another fresh set of exams to become a chief engineer there's another set of exams on the deck side your first license gives you a second officer's license so you sail as a third and a second officer and to become a chief mate you have to take another set of exams to become a captain you have to take another set of exams so yes. this is not one of those professions wherein uh, your education is done when it's done no, you no, no. continue taking exams uh, you know every few years when you want to level up no you've known that like even now i'm taking exams to uh, become a chief engineer and i'm in my 30s i still have to study now i see i see thank you for clearing that Uh, any closing comments that you would like to share with listeners who are contemplating a career in merchant navy or are currently in the merchant navy and would want to hear a point of view see 
this this job is is very uh, rewarding but it comes at a cost it takes from one hand what it gives with the other hand right while you lose out on uh, social connections you lose out on uh, the intimacy of friends and family and loved ones it gives you a lot more in return i would say just being physically away from civilization gives you so much perspective in life it really you know it makes everything clear for you it writes it you know it's crystal clear what is really important in life what really matters and the things that don't matter like i remember i came back every time i come back uh, from the ship something is being talked about on land it's it could be politics could be social issues whatever issues and i've come back from a ship where these things didn't exist and to me to get this outside perspective that you know what this isn't actually that important that you're missing the whole point of human existence you know you get that perspective in life you see what's really important and what's not important and then you just neglect the rest and you develop this kind of a zen mental state that you just live in the moment and that can only be provided if you're physically away from the from civilization one and when you have environments like you're surrounded by the blue ocean for days on end you know it's it really changes you and i feel this change in me over the over the years that i've spent at sea so it's it's great i quite like it i don't really see myself uh, quitting to get a shore job i mean a lot of people do that's up to them but as far as i'm concerned it's given me a unique perspective in life where i i really think i would have been a very different person if i had a job on land i would have been somebody else entirely but i i'm glad i'm this version of myself so i'm quite happy with uh, the choices that i made well i second that and i can vouch for the fact that you've changed a lot uh, and uh, you know a funny story that uh, when we were both getting out of school i was the quiet one and you were the social one and now it's the other way around simply because of the professions we've chosen yeah. so uh, sometimes uh, you choose the profession and the other times the profession chooses you and on that uh, philosophical note uh, thank you so much for joining in and thank you for busting all those myths about merchant navy to our listeners do stay tuned uh, into the series and we will be bringing to you several such experts uh, who will break down the nitty gritties and the day to days of uh, many many professions and careers thank you so much arjun for joining in thank you for all your questions sir good day good day